So a friend sent me her manuscript the other day. Sometimes when that happens, it's not the most welcome thing because you're like, oh, oh, I hope this is good. <laughs> but this is really fucking great. It was, it's, it's a great book and it's going to exist soon somewhere in the world uh, if somebody's smart and publishes it. The center of the book is a poem written to an ex and reading it and feeling how electric it is, how alive it is, I started to think about this is one of those things that poetry can do that is just really delicious and exciting and fun. It can communicate to someone the thing that you actually wanted to say be it a week later, a year later, a lifetime later, you finally get to have the last word. So I want to try to come up with a unified field theory here today of what this kind of poem is, because it's not quite a complaint. It's not quite a confession. It is epistolary in some ways. You are writing specifically to one person and you've got something to say to them but you kind of want them to read it and you kind of don't there's a risk that they might read it and they might get it and they might feel like oh god is that me but also you might get away with it so elegies don't count here the person has to be living there has to be that sense of as a reader oh wow I wonder if um, that poem is ever going to reach its intended target. I've done this before. I do this all the time. Sometimes I worry that this is the only kind of poem I write. One of the first poems I ever managed to get over the line into a journal came together because a friend said to me, Alice, you've mellowed quite a bit. And it took me so long to realize that I was super fucking angry about, about that comment. This is a person who I am still very much friends with. I still love this man very, very much. But Jesus Christ, what a thing to say. <laughs> what a backhanded compliment. Uh, he wasn't wrong. You know, I used to be a lot crazier than I am even now. Um, but yeah, really stung. And I had to put that somewhere because I couldn't exactly have a conversation with him about that and I couldn't let go of it. So the poem seemed like the right place to put that and, you know, went into a book and the book went out into the world and as far as I can tell, he didn't read it and he didn't care. So I got away with it. I got away with it. Of course, the art form that does this the best is the pop song. There's no getting around that all too well. Since you've been gone, don't start now. Uh, I'm just going to keep naming songs for you. I noticed recently on Spotify that people are being really hilarious and starting their playlists with the words POV. And um, one of my favorite versions of that is POV, you are the hot X. And I think that Maybe that is the kind of poem I'm talking about here. It's the poem that is 
setting the thing on fire and walking away. So I'm going to read a bunch of poems and we can try to find a through line. My suspicion is that if you write poetry at all, you have already written this kind of poem. So here goes. Here's my Hot X playlist. The first poem, <laughs> just thinking about this person as a hot ex doesn't really work for me, but um, the first poem is No Second Troy by William Butler Yeats. I figured out when I looked into this that he was 50 when he wrote this and his uh, the object of his rebuffed affection, Maud Gone, was 51. This guy had been obsessing about Maud for just a very long time and I guess there was there's a lot he tried to say and in the end he distilled it down into 12 very bitter lines why should I blame her that she filled my days with misery or that she would of late have taught to ignorant men most violent ways or hurled the little streets upon the great had they but courage equal to desire what could have made her peaceful with a mind that nobleness made simple as a fire, with beauty like a tightened bow, a kind that is not natural in an age like this, being high and solitary and most stern? Why? What could she have done, being what she is? Was there another Troy for her to burn? I think that's a pretty exceptional mic drop at the end there, after saying that this person is pretty evil, pretty uh, mind simple as a fire, so maybe not very intelligent, and a beauty that is unnatural. Is, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can, it, it radiates off this fucking poem, like, just so long after. Yeah. But I think part of what makes it electric is she was still alive. She probably read it. And I'm guessing that if she replied, she didn't get to reply in quite such a public way. Maybe she did. Maybe she went and like made a speech about how fucked up Yates was. I don't know. But we still have this poem. Never fear, this is not going to be all uh, male poets being bitter and angry at women. We're going to fast forward to the present-ish day to a book that is essentially all this. The whole book is speaking to someone who has stopped speaking to the writer, Maggie Nelson's Bluets. I called this book Bluets for just, I mean, I still prefer to call it Bluets. Um, yeah, the whole book is basically... The, the conceit is that Maggie's in love with the color blue, but really I think it's just an excuse to speak to this ex-lover of hers who sounds pretty awful. And um, yeah, not, not to say that she's like lying about the blue stuff, but there are some passages in here that are seething and they get obscured a little bit by, oh, here's a definition of blue, and here's a dream I had about blue, and here's a quote about blue, and then she'll say, one of the last times you came to see me, you were wearing a pale blue button-down shirt, short-sleeved. I wore this for you, you said. We fucked for six hours straight that afternoon, which does not seem precisely possible, but that is what the clock said. We killed the time. 
you were on your way to a seaside town, a town of much blue, where you would be spending a week with the other woman you were in love with, the woman you are with now. I'm in love with you both in completely different ways, you said. It seemed unwise to contemplate this statement any further. And then, yeah, blue, 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 Malame, Walden, blue in German, blue in a fire, Malame, ultramarine, Bertrand Russell, and then, perhaps it is becoming clearer why I felt no romance when you told me that you carried my last letter with you everywhere you went for months on end, unopened. This may have served some purpose for you, but whatever it was, surely it bore little resemblance to mine. I never aimed to give you a talisman, an empty vessel, to flood with whatever longing, dread, or sorrow happened to be the day's mood. I wrote it because I had something to say to you. A couple of years ago, I wrote a birthday poem for a friend. Mistake one. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> I wrote a birthday poem. Put it in an envelope. Put it with the present. It's never been opened. The present hasn't been opened. <laughs> you got to not do that. Just, yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning as I go. Here's one that doesn't quite fit the definition that I'm going for, but I'm going to include it just to show how it falls a little bit outside the lines. So I'm back to my Penguin book of Japanese verse and a writer called Mibu Tadamine who was apparently one of the 36 poetic geniuses and author of the critical work Ten Styles of Japanese Poetry, so not, not you know, not unknown. Um, he writes, Since that parting, when she seemed as unfeeling as the moon at morning, nothing so cruel as the light of dawn. When the wind blows, the white clouds are cleft by the peak. Is your heart like them, so cold? So it's specific since that parting. He's talking about a specific person, a specific farewell, and he wants this person to feel as bad as he does. But I think this doesn't quite fit what I'm going for because there's every chance that this person, um, this lady, just never encountered this poem. Maybe she did, but... It's kind of a who knows, and it takes a bit of the electricity out of it. Another example that kind of falls outside the lines, but I think is instructive, is the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The content doesn't really have anything to do with what I'm talking about here, but I was listening to an episode of the very earnest and erudite podcast, In Our Time, hosted by Melvin Bragg the grumpiest host of any podcast ever. And they were talking about the Rubaiyat and talking about the history of how it was written. And apparently the only reason we have it basically is because of this feeling of being not listened to and not able to connect with someone. So Fitzgerald, Edward Fitzgerald, who translated it, was given the manuscript by a friend um, a close friend, you know, make of that what you will, um, who was going away to India with his wife. And at the time, going away to India was basically code for never going to see you again, hardly ever going to hear from you, you're probably going to die over there. And 
Fitzgerald um, felt really hurt by this. He was like, why, why India? Why this woman? Why don't you just hang out here with me? Um, we've been having a great time. And uh, yeah, the answer was, no, no, I'm, I'm going to go to India, but I'm going to leave you this manuscript to translate. <laughs> and so he, he did. He translated it. He translated the whole thing kind of as a fuck you, kind of as a like, well, if you're just going to leave me here, then I'm going to do better with this this poetry than you ever would have done. And in that episode, they talk about how at one point, apparently one of his letters to his friend was, you know, I am I am closer to the Rubaiyat than you will ever be. And um, Omar, Omar Khayyam has replaced you in my heart and this kind of stuff. So, yeah. The whole thing is like the motivation for doing that translation work came from this place of like lonely bitterness. So that's another little one to add to the collection, my little playlist here. I have the complete poems of Anne Sexton. It's good to have the complete poems because it's good to see how many of these are unreadably bad. Um, and how many of them are great? Uh, I think it skews more towards unreadably bad, actually, but that's okay. Um, I think that the majority, I think that a lot of what Anne Sexton does falls into this category. But again, you know, Anne Sexton is like, well, she's the confessional poet, right? But I, I don't think she's like, confession is the wrong word. She's the revenge poet. I'm going to read you this one. It's kind of long, but I think it makes the point I want to make pretty well. This is called For My Lover Returning to His Wife. She is all there. She was melted carefully down for you and cast up from your childhood, cast up from your 100 favorite Aggies. I'm not sure what Aggie is. I'll have to look it up. She has always been there, my darling. She is, in fact, exquisite. Fireworks in the dull middle of February and as real as a cast iron pot. Let's face it. I have been momentary, a luxury. A bright red sloop in the harbour. My hair rising like smoke from the car window. Little neck clams out of season. I don't know why you would compare yourself to a clam. <laughs> But that's what, that's what she's gone for there. She is more than that. She is your have-to-have. Has grown you your practical, your tropical growth. This is not an experiment. She is all harmony. She sees to oars and oar locks for the dinghy. Has placed wildflowers at the window at breakfast. Sat by the potter's wheel at midday. Set forth three children under the moon, three cherubs, drawn by Michelangelo done this with her legs spread out in the terrible months in the chapel. If you glance up, the children are there like delicate balloons resting on the ceiling. She has also carried each one down the hall after supper, their heads privately bent, two legs protesting, person to person, her face flushed with a song in their little sleep. I give you back your heart. I give you permission. For the fuse inside her throbbing angrily in the dirt, for the bitch in her, and the burying of her wound, for the burying of her small red wound alive, 
for the pale flickering flare under her ribs, for the drunken sailor who waits in her left pulse, for the mother's knee, for the stockings, for the garter belt, for the call, the curious call, when you will burrow in arms and breasts, and tug at the orange ribbon in her hair and answer the call, the curious call. She is so naked and singular. She is the sum of yourself and your dream. Climb her like a monument, step after step. She is solid. As for me, I am a watercolour. I wash off. I feel like I might have lost some of you way <laughs> through that one. Oh, look, and sex, like, she's a tough sell. Sexton is a tough sell. That's, yeah. But you see my point. That lover will probably come across that poem. Maybe the wife will come across that poem. Or at least there's a risk that they might. And so Sexton gets to exist with the satisfaction of knowing that she has said what she wanted to say in exactly the way she wanted to say it in the time that everyone was still living. These don't all have to be love poems. In my, my uh, very shaky working definition that I'm, that I'm groping towards here. Another one that I came across that I thought worked was a poem called Self-Publishing by Yu Yang Yu. And Yu Yang has published a lot of books and uh, a lot of them he has published himself. And I'm guessing from the tenor of this poem that there have been people who've had something to say about that. I won't read the whole thing, but it starts like this. In a way, everything is self-publishing. When you open your mouth to talk, you are self-publishing because you don't want someone else to speak for you, even if he or she were the speechwriter for Howard or Bush or Mao Zedong. When the rain decides to fall, it is self-publishing on a regional scale, sometimes on a statewide scale. You can't dismiss it as untrustworthily self-publishing because it doesn't fall on a national scale or international scale. Rivers in the world are self-publishing on a daily and nightly basis. Even a little creek is self-publishing when it winds its way through an industrial zone clogged with toxicity and waste. Birds never remain quiet because they don't get paid for calling. There are ways of self-publishing that are never actually recorded in human history, not even in birds' history. And when sometimes it does get recorded, as in relaxation music, they still don't get paid and they still keep singing their ways of self-publishing. Maybe there is a specific person that that poem is for, but I suspect it's more for a group of people, a type of criticism, a set of irritations that Yu Yang has been um, sitting with for some time. And I was thinking too about Morgan Parker's poem, Now More Than Ever, which I have always, since the first time I heard her read it, uh, I just thought it was just one of the most brilliant things. Um, and it is, again, a little bit like that poem, but on an even broader scale, it's just generally like the last word against self-satisfied, uptight white liberals such as myself. You know, I feel very... I feel like when when I read that poem, the spotlight has swung around to point at me, and uh, it's a it's a very bracing sensation. 
Um, but I was thinking, you know, I think Morgan Parker does this a lot of the time. I don't think you have to look far at all. In fact, I picked up um, her book, Magical Negro, off my shelf here, and I just opened it to a random page, and there's a poem here called When a Man I Love Jerks Off in My Bed Next to Me and Falls Asleep. I mean, do you even need the poem? Like, the title (laughs) kind of does everything you needed to do there. Um, Yeah, it's that's a real person that's a real experience like I mean sure we can do the whole the speaker dance if we want to but I don't think we do so there's another book that has come up once on here before when I was talking to Justin Clemens we both kind of cried out when we remembered that this book existed it's Laurie Duggan's Epigrams of Marshall and this is an example of where this kind of poem gets twisted back on itself and the poet starts writing last words poems of revenge to other poets so these are not ex-lovers who might or might not read your book these are not it's not just a, a class of people out there that may or may not feel the sting of the poem these are contemporaries that Laurie is naming and having the most fun ever just like venomously taking them down it's a small book but it packs a punch in introducing it Laurie says in 1986 on completion of my book the ash range Michael Hayward suggested I try my hand at translating Marshall he equipped me with the two volume Loeb classical library edition and left me to go on from there I had recognized in the Edwardian prose versions a tone which I could identify with realizing at the same time that if these poems were to be effectively reworked in English, their tone was the most important thing to retain. All right, you can really just open this book anywhere and find something just evil, truly evil, which is so weird to me because when I met Laurie, I've never met such a lovely, gentle, quiet person. So I don't know where this is coming from. He's hiding it well. (laughs) Here's one. When your filing cabinet overflows with those manuscripts your executor is pledged to print, it's time you were between the boards. Goodwin, who'd call my epigrams frivolous, doesn't know what epigrams are. Frivolity belongs to those who fake the common touch, who juggle grand themes and striking metaphors. My work is far from theirs. Their poems win the prizes. Mine are memorized by drunks. This is one of my absolute favorites. If you haven't been given a free copy of my book, it's because I don't want a free copy of yours. I guess he's just got so much freedom because it's not him, really, is it? Except then he starts naming people. John Forbes rents a decrepit flat a block from the Tranter's lush terrace, so he eats and drinks from a well-stocked freezer and sleeps soundly on a broken mattress. I just have to assume with that one that John Forbes and John Tranter both got it, (laughs) because Forbes was still alive when this book came out. John Tranter is still alive now. Um, Yeah, I... 
I guess they were all really good friends or they were until this book came out. I don't know. I don't know. And then right at the end, Laurie slash Marshall, whoever it is, is talking at this point, turns around and looks at you. I've written nothing against you, reader, but since you don't believe me, maybe I will. It's fun, though. It is fun. I'd love to be able to say that I'm going to give this habit up and stop writing poems that are trying to win an argument with someone, um, but I seem to be pretty hooked on it. I don't seem to be able to get away from that impulse. I guess at the end of the day, I just want to write something that is 10% as good as the moment in Since You've Been Gone when the guitars kick in. That is, that's, that's all I want. Here's the thing, we started out friends. It was cool, but it was all pretend. And yeah, yeah. Oh, there's no backup dancers? Okay. I'm sorry, what was that? Hello, my name is Elena Kurama. I was born with Celtic Fish. <laughs>